welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. Tim, you had the interview this week. You spoke with Nilay Patel, who is the editor-in-chief of The Verge. And The Verge just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. I'm curious, in the course of a decade, does Nilay, did he say, like, The Verge feels drastically different than what it felt like at its onset? Or does it feel like it stayed pretty true to its DNA from the start? It's you know funny because 10 years feels like a long time. feels like everything's changed in the last 10 years, let alone the last 18 months. But uh, what Neil I was saying is, you know, it sounds like not all that much has changed at The Verge, at least not on a like a drastic level, but that instead like The Verge is now kind of at where it wanted to be from its inception in terms of like, I think he mentions, you know, being able to now have a Facebook reporter, whereas, you know, 10 years ago, I think it would have been hard for them to have a person just focus on a specific company like that. And so, um, you know, he talks a lot about scale and how um, The Verge has, you know, achieved a certain scale at this point that um, has allowed it to build on the ambitions that it had originally. At the same time, however, like a lot of media companies, um, especially digital media companies, have had to adapt and change their business strategies to either stay afloat or like also just like diversify revenue and grow. Um, In that same vein, like what has changed from like the business end of things for The Verge? Yeah, I mean, in the past two months, uh, it seems like a lot has changed, at least on the business side. Um, they, in September, Vox Media acquired Hot Pod, which is a newsletter uh, focused on the podcasting industry. Um, and so that is now you know part of The Verge and The Verge's first paid product. Hot Pod has a subscription business. Um, the Verge also just held its first in-person event um, about two weeks ago. Um, to celebrate the 10-year anniversary and is looking to do more events. Um, And then it's also, uh, in October, rolled out a connected TV app. And so now it's doing stuff on the TV screen as well. All right. Well, it sounds like some cool new things are happening after a decade of growth. So I'm excited to hear this interview. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kayla. Neil Patel, welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Verge just celebrated its 10-year birthday, well, like a week or two ago, I think at the point of this podcast going up. So happy birthday to all of you. Thank you. Yeah. November 1, 2011, we launched The Verge. Okay. So the day before this podcast will go out. 10 years in, I mean, even <laughs> over the past two months, The Verge seems fairly different than it was. Um, you all, within the past two months, have launched a connected TV app. You've acquired and gotten into the subscription business. Um, and then you've also hosted your first live event. I mean, you've been at The Verge going back to before it was even technically The Verge when it was just, this is my next, and Vox Media was just SB Nation. Um, what, in your eyes, is like the biggest difference about The Verge today versus The Verge in on November 1st, 2011. The biggest difference between The Verge now and The Verge 10 years ago is that we have the staff and the capability to actually do all the things we wanted to do 10 years ago. That's important. 10 years, 10 years ago, when we were making our first ambitious, fanciful org charts for how we would build a newsroom, they seemed fully ridiculous. The idea that we would have a, a Facebook reporter, it felt like nonsense. Now we have very good ones. So we, we've been able to grow in a sustainable way. 
uh, and actually build the kind of team we thought that the tech world needed as the tech world itself grew to dominate the entire world. Um, and the, the, the flurry of activity that you're seeing this year is because we thought 2020 would be our growth year. In t- instead, 2020 was our pandemic destruction year. So we said, well, 2021, we're going to do it. We're back. The business is doing great. Uh, so all of that energy was pent up. And it is all, it's all coming out at once because we're, we're turning 10. We're excited. We want to take the next step of our evolution. But those ideas have been, those ideas have been brewing for a long time. But like, I mean, is the, how has the coverage changed or shifted or evolved? Like you mentioned having someone reporting on Facebook. Imagine, you know, even the reporting you would have had that person doing on Facebook in 2011, 2012 would have been a lot different than any of the reporting Facebook going on right now, especially in the era of the Facebook papers. Yeah, I, I think some of that's true. And some of it for us is, nope, these are the same ideas. We we just put out you know our huge packages about our 10-year anniversary with all the lookbacks. And the thing that is really striking is that the themes are exactly the same. The companies might be different. The people are obviously different. But the themes... Hey, there's a big platform and someone has to moderate it. Well, that's been going on for more than 10 years. That's been going on for 20, 30 years. Ever since bulletin boards and BBS has existed, there's been moderation problems. The thing that has changed is the scale. I don't know, in the 90s, everyone was mad at Microsoft about lock-in and operating system control. Now it's Apple and Google. The thing that is truly different is that the scale at which these companies operate. So the the themes for us are very much the same. And I think the fact that we've been focused on those themes for 10 years means that we're able to meet the moment when the scale is world-altering. Has the audience changed at all? Like not only just in terms of size of audience or makeup of audience, but what they're interested in or like, you know, when it comes to a story about Apple or Google today, whether they're interested in different aspects of it or if you're able to cover it differently because like maybe just people's tech literacy is different now the audience definitely changed because it's gotten bigger so as as you add more and more people the audience necessarily changes on you what we have found is two things one the number of people who come to read our particularly our policy and platform coverage because it helps them be good at their job has dramatically increased so if you are Someone who manages influencer marketing at a brand, or you are an influencer, your influencer's uh, manager, you you need a trade publication. And so our creators' coverage has become that for a lot of those people. Here are how the platforms are working. Here's where the money is going. If you are a policy person or you work on the Hill and you're thinking about regulating internet platforms, you also need a good source of information. And so a lot of those people read our site. That's our partnership with Casey and Platformer, which we're very proud of. So that part of the audience, where we are now a resource for people doing their jobs, is surprising to me. That's new. We were a consumer tech website. Now we have these other aspects. But our thesis from the beginning is that it's fun to be smart about technology and thoughtful about it. And so we've never felt any pressure to dumb down or go more mainstream. We've always felt pressure to make people deeper into it. And you mentioned like 2020 was going to be that you know, big growth year for you all. And obviously the pandemic and took us all by surprise. 
say the least. Uh, <laughs> but was there like some kind of like milestone or some like point you reached where you you kind of recognized, okay, now we can do those things that in 2011 were, you know, we had like in the glint of our eye, but didn't know when we would be able to get to. Was there kind of like a moment or an example that you can point to of, you know, what flipped? I think there is, for me personally, a realization that we had hit an audience scale that enabled us to do all kinds of things. Um, and that we had an audience that cared about us as people. This was really extremely reinforced at our event. You know, I don't think most media brands have their staff show up an event and then have the staff mobbed by people who've been reading them for 10 years. I, I had a lot of people who are product managers at tech companies now or budding entrepreneurs come up and say, I've been reading you for 10 years, which implies they've been reading us since they were teenagers, right? Th that's crazy to think about. And so I think we just hit a place that we felt very confident that the foundation was in place, that we had a level of trust with a big audience that we could start to expand without diluting the core product. And with that, like, I mean, you all kind of had that. A lot of the founding team of The Verge had come over from Engadget. And I remember being at the last Engadget show in 2011, which was live. It was in New York. It was... Um, you know, in front of a you know live audience, it felt like a lot of that would have applied to that audience, where it just it seemed like a bunch of folks who were just super into you, Joanna Stern, Josh Topolsky, Paul Miller, and so like really, you know, with the experience you had at the ten year event, the On the Verge event, like how, in what ways, like was it really that different? Yeah, um, you know, we were all babies in 2011. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, that's an important fact I remind people of. We we were very confident. Could we execute was a big question. I, we've learned to execute very well. But at the very beginning, um, I, you know, starting th new things are hard. I, I tell my team all the time. Um, I think what's different for me now is the industry has come up with us. So in the Engadget days, the industry was new. The players were new. We were effectively new. The the folks you mentioned, we had only been covering tech for a handful of years. Now, after all this time, we are embedded in the industry. We are part of the industry. We reflect the industry. We validate the industry. We critique the industry. So we're able to, I think, play a different role. And I take that role very seriously, which is, yeah, we we're journalists. We, we're we're standing apart from this from this world. But we are the entry point for a lot of people into tech, and we're the ones who provide a framework for how you might understand it. And then the companies that we cover, they need someone to hold them accountable who they feel is credible, and we play that role too. The On The Verge event, which I think was last weekend, if I'm getting my dates mixed up, I think, or no, this coming weekend. It was this last weekend that we this, just had. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, the first ever live event for The Verge. And from the announcement post, it sounds like it's not going to be the, like the, this wasn't a one-off. Is that right? We would, we would very much like it not to be. Um, I, the way I think about it is the first night was our birthday party, which we would have thrown anyway. It was really fun. Uh, a lot of our alumni were there, friends of The Verge from years past. The second day was a prototype of, of an event that we might throw in the future. And I think that day was, that was the programming speakers and guests and panels that stuff was really fun we'd love to do it again 
we'll see. But I, we all have a lot of confidence that we should do things like that in the future. Yeah, why now to start dabbling in events and look to get into events further moving forward? Yeah, it's a, it's a strange time to do it. Yeah. Um, because only because we, we wanted to celebrate the 10 year anniversary and we have hope we're optimistic that a year from now, it will not seem like such a straight, strange time to be doing events. We did look at the universe of events in New York. Other events are happening. We had the same protocols, vaccine verification, all that stuff. We had just come from the code conference. We felt confident that we could do it safely, but yeah, we're hoping a year from now the conversation doesn't immediately turn to safety and turns to actually the event. And like, I mean, having Recode be part of the Vox Media portfolio, and obviously they've been in the events business for a long time. What did you take from them that you applied here? To, and, and like, were there things that you tried to do? Because like you mentioned that Saturday, you had speaking sessions, but then there was also an art gallery you had in arcade. So it wasn't just a standard conference. Yeah. Uh, the, the code conference is wonderful and I love going to it. I've been honored to be going to it for a long time. I think Walt and Kara built something very special there. That is a conference for executives and business people. And that is the audience and the crowd. That is the people on stage. It is unbeatable. It is the best of its kind. I'm not, I'm not trying to be in that lane. I think our conference needs to be about The Verge, which is the culture that technology creates. It needs to be for people. It needs to be for our consumer audience. It needs to be open. So we were open. Anybody could buy a ticket. Code is invite only. We, we wanted to show real people doing things with technology. So we did have art exhibits. We had a drawing class on the roof, which was my favorite. To have an event where a bunch of people are quietly learning to draw just like it made me so happy. Like very few other media brands can can pull off an art class. Um, we had musicians. It was the the point was not come listen to executives. The point was come participate in the the future in all these various ways. And we programmed it very intentionally in that direction. And is that why it was scheduled for a Saturday? Yeah, we wanted everybody to come. And so, like coming off that, and you're fresh off that, but like. How then is that, are you thinking about like what events you may want to do in 2022 and what you may want to do differently with those? I mean, once you do your first one, you have a million ideas for the second one and especially how you might improve. So um, nothing to share, but certainly we, we didn't walk away uninspired. We walked away thinking, oh, we could do 50 of these. There's a lot of ways to do them. I think it's going to be a matter of filtering down to the best ideas and the ones that we think we can execute. Are you thinking about live streaming any of them potentially to the Verge uh, connected TV app? Uh, yeah, we streamed we streamed some of this event to Twitter just to try it out. A lot of people couldn't come. A lot of people had concerns about coming. So we, we again, the point of the Verge is to be open, to be democratic. So we did a little test here. The app and the event didn't quite line up. We certainly would have tried to window people into the app, but. Um, I think Twitter was a better option at this point in time. We'll see what happens in the future. Why Twitter as opposed to, I mean, there are all of the live stream platforms <laughs> at this point. Uh, we, we just want, we just thought it was the best platform for it. But wh why? Like, what was it that made Twitter the best platform for it? We were hoping with some of the, the panels to break news. We know a lot of our audience is there. I think the other platforms, we, you know, The Verge has a large Twitter account. 
the other platforms, you know, you kind of YouTube and whatever else, you get kind of lost in the mix. So we, we wanted to be in a place where we're a little bit more in control. Got it. Speaking of places where you can be more in control is having your own connected TV app, which The Verge just launched, I think like early October. The Verge has been in video, I think since the jump. Um, and you do a lot, you know, when it comes to producing videos for YouTube, um, among other platforms. But why create your own connected TV app? Well, so the first part is you're exactly right. We've been making video from the beginning. We have a huge library of video that we think is interesting that we want to resurface in different ways. The second, most importantly, our audience keeps asking us for a way to view video without the baggage of YouTube or other platforms. And so our company has been building apps for a while. Eater has an app. We could leverage that work. We could build our own app. We could go to the platforms. We could deliver the content in 4K, which you know, the way technology works. When we started, that wasn't possible on every platform. Now it's possible on YouTube on more platforms, but, but we're more, right. So we're more in control of the content. Uh, and we were making this documentary and we wanted to, we were making this documentary about handspring called springboard. Uh, and we wanted a great way to showcase that. So that all lined up and we just think some people do not want the baggage of YouTube, and they're very clear with us about that, and I think that's a good opportunity for us. What's the particular baggage they don't want with YouTube? Uh, they don't want their kids using it. They don't want the recommendation engine. They don't want they don't want to go from our channel to another channel without knowing it's happening. There's just a lot of, give me an app, let me be in this place, and when I want to leave, I'll leave. The app is free and ad-supported. Are you planning to stick with that, or is there a The Verge Plus in the offing? <laughs> um, we don't. We have but one tiny subscription offering, which is Hot Pod Insider. Um, we're seeing how that goes. It's our first dip in the water of of subscription products. We think ad supported is a good model for a consumer site at our scale. That's what we're sticking with, but certainly we're investigating it in other areas. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Sticking on, you know, the Verge connected TV app. So you mentioned, you know, Handspring um, or Springboard being the first documentary, being a documentary about Handspring. I watched it. It's a half hour documentary, so it's you know definitely you know more long form than the videos or most of the videos that you all put up on the YouTube channel. But it also felt like very much in line with a lot of the YouTube videos that you all put out. It had similar production quality. The sets were you know very much the same. So like, to what extent are you looking to like do original videos, original programming for the connected TV app and try different things than what you historically have done and put on you know platforms like YouTube? Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons we have that app. If you are focused on one platform, that platform's priorities get expressed into your programming. YouTube videos all kind of look the same now, right? They're they're all built to win, win that algorithm. I don't know if we're eventually we will the the handspring documentary will end up on the web. We know we're going to do that. But we wanted to make something that stood apart from that style of programming and give it the best stage it could be on. So one of the opportunities with the connected TV apps is very much to say, hey, we made something. It's great. Go watch it here. It's not going to have a big, loud thumbnail and a sensationalistic headline 
It's just going to be the thing that it is. And we're going to market it our way. I don't know if that's going to be successful, but it feels like the right kind of bet to be making when you have an audience that will come along for the ride. And are you looking to make more shows or specials that would be exclusive or kind of first windowed on the Connected TV app? Uh, nothing to share. We're, we've just done a lot of new things. So I think we're going to see how the new things are doing before we make a bunch of bets in the future. But certainly the reason we're trying a bunch of new things is because we have ideas like that. So what is it that you need to find out um, in order to determine whether you want to be doing more original programming? Because I would have you know, just assumed, given the costs that go into developing and then even just maintaining a connected TV app, that you would almost like be incentivized to do exclusive programming for that just to justify the cost of it that's one of the benefits of working at the larger fox media right there's a company-wide video strategy there's our video strategy and then there's the things we want to do because we think they're the right journalistic thing to do for an audience that cares um so i don't feel the pressure from a business standpoint to program to this app i feel the pressure from an audience standpoint to make great things and i know that we're pretty good at figuring out the money after a decade. So we're, we'll make a business out of it once we find the audience. And that, if you go and listen to Jim Bankoff, that has always been his approach. Find a real audience. Don't just get traffic. Find an audience. And we will figure out how to monetize the audience in a respectful way. Having a connected TV app now in the mix, does that introduce any changes to the overall video approach, knowing that like a video that's being produced for YouTube will also go up on the connected TV app. And so whether that like opens up opportunities to do things somewhat differently since you have this other distribution outlet. Let me answer that question a little bit more abstractly. Okay. Right now the, the, the monetization for web video broadly is you make something, it costs some amount of money. Now you have an MP4 file. You need to sell it to someone. And so one of your choices is you could sell it to YouTube for like pennies on the dollar and hope it attracts a wide enough audience and you have enough inbuilt sponsorship, whatever, to get your money back. If you don't have anywhere else to sell it, now you're trapped by YouTube's economics. And every creator I talk to is deeply aware of this, right? I talk to lots of creators on Decoder. I talk to the CEO of Patreon. I talk to rival platforms. They're all aware only having one customer for your video is bad. So yeah, broadly, I think everyone is saying, where are, the, where are the multiple places we can go so that we spend the money on the asset once and we can sell it multiple times? And even more abstractly, that is the whole media business forever, right? You have multiple distributors, you have multiple regions. What's happening now is you have multiple platforms. Got it. And then it's, but it's still a question of the Vox sales team figuring out that monetization. Cause like, if you're going to invest $10,000 in a video that goes up on YouTube, you stand a different shot of, you know, making that money back or making a profit on that. than if you also have a connected TV app where you're controlling ad sales and where, you know, maybe you can be charged or they can be charging more for those ads. Yeah. But I think you're looking at it from the perspective of one video at a time. I'm looking at it from the perspective of, I have a decade's worth of video. And so the videos from five years ago are well and paid for. So every incremental dollar that we we make on these apps is like new dollars, but they're the margins are way higher. And I that's like that's not my role. I I'm in charge of editorial and creative. We have 
I have a great boss, Helen Havlak, our VP. I have a great SVP and Chris Grant. They spend their time worrying on the business, but the business makes sense um, because we do have that library. And again, the longevity of the brand and the commitment to making the library is the thing now that leads into a new kind of business. Right. I guess my question was more, if you know at this point you spend X amount of money on a new, you know, the review of the new iPhone, but whether knowing that you also now would have the connected TV app as an additional revenue source, whether that changes how you know, what the budget would be for that review review video or your willingness to do a five part series on some topic. No, not at this time, but the app is brand new. The strategy question you're asking is, can you quit YouTube, right? The app is like brand new. It doesn't have, it doesn't, you know, it, it's growing an audience. We're surprised by how much, how much people want it. But it's it's new to the point where it's not exerting any programming pressure on us. Maybe one day it will be the dominant place that we distribute video and we will find ourselves running Netflix for all tech video. And that would be amazing. But right now it's, what it is is a service to the audience that says we want another way to view this video with the baggage of these platforms. And it's a place for us to say we want a program video that isn't driven by the pressures of the algorithms. That's a good combination of things. Can we turn that into a big business? We'll find out. Okay. Yeah, no, my question is more of like the connected ZV app as supplementary revenue stream is like in college, I remember when I got a second job, it was just like, oh, now I can get like the nicer milk or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we run a pretty healthy business. You know, we, we've never, um, uh, we've never shied away from high production value. So w- we feel confident we can pull that off. I think fundamentally, can we, is user behavior going to shift away from platforms? Can we be ready for them? Can we integrate the app into all the discovery methods of smart TV platform? That's all to come. Got it. Um, September, Vox Media acquires Hot Pod, which is a newsletter focused on covering um, the podcast industry. It also has a subscription business, um, Hot Pod now part of The Verge and The Verge's first foray into the subscription business. Why get into the subscription business and you know, you're looking at other paid products. And so what are you looking for? Um, so the, you know, Hot Pod was opportunistic. We, we have known and liked Nick Qua for a long time. He's the founder of Hot Pod. He ran it by himself for a long time. He was coming to Vulture, which is part of the company. And so I, I know Nick. We knew he was coming to Vulture. And we said, hey, we love Hot Pod. Have you ever thought about letting Ashley do it? Because Nick and Ashley were really, really good friends. Ashley Carmen. Ashley Carmen are friends. And so that conversation was just very organic. It wasn't, I wasn't on the hunt for a subscription product. It was people I respect coming to work at the company. I had a perfect senior reporter who was already friends with that proprietor. I didn't think we were going to lose subscribers right away with an author change. I thought we would actually gain them, um, which we have actually um our net gain since ashley's taken over which is good we're like marketing the thing i can't tell you um but we're happy about it um but fundamentally what we knew was we did have this audience of people who were coming at us to be better at their jobs and the story of podcasting is the story of big tech companies right now right there's a lot the whole podcast industry was built by indies 
and Apple and Spotify and Google. They're all swirling around and they control distribution and they run the players and they're building ad networks. And we're really good at that story. We just had a confluence of capabilities and we knew we'd have Nick. Nick's at our company, in our Slack. Like We weren't going to blow it because we could just ask him what to do. Uh, and he could tell us. So we could ask him for advice. So that came together. It's a great first product. We feel good about it. We're wondering what other kinds of products like that we might have. And then how we might make them part of a larger, you know, there's other things you can buy at Vox Media. How do we create more value for people? But right now we're very narrowly focused on making Hot Pod good. And so, like you mentioned, you weren't looking at Hot Pod because it had a subscription business. Um, that was just a piece of it. But why keep the subscription business as opposed to Hot Pod's part of The Verge now? And now it's free for everyone. <laughs> Well, part of it's free, right? We're, we, some issues of Hot Pod go up for free on the Verge all the time. Um, it's a skill we don't have, right? The Verge has never taken paid customer support emails. We've never managed billing. So we, because New York Mag is this company, there are capabilities we could use that they have already built over many, many years to try to learn what does our audience want. And we think HopPod, because of that trade aspect, it's worth paying for, right? It's not just more stuff or the ads go away. It is actionable, tradable information. And we think that is always worth paying for. You mentioned New York Magazine. Obviously, they have a longstanding subscription business. But then there are other properties within Vox Media that haven't really pushed into subscriptions and have even, I think when we had Melissa Bell on the podcast in December of last year, we talked about how Vox.com has dabbled in like contributor donations. But, um, and I think even when I spoke with Swathi Sharma in the spring of this year, we talked a little bit about subscriptions, but like the line at Vox.com has very been, very much been about we don't really want to not have content freely available to everyone for all of our content. We don't want people to run into a paywall. And so, and Verge seems like kind of in the middle, like you mentioned HotPod, there are HotPod pieces that are freely available, but how, to what extent are you like talking with the folks at New York, talking with the folks at Vox.com and figuring out like what you want your paid strategy to be and whether at some point there will be like a blanket Vox Media paid strategy. We're talking to the folks at New York Mag because we're on HopPod and we're using their capabilities, which fundamentally means we're asking for their help. They've been very helpful. We're seeing how it goes, but we're not going to paywall the Verge, right? Like we have a big consumer audience. It is, we have a healthy advertising business. We have actually have multiple lines of revenue inside of that advertising business. We have a big commerce business. Um, so all that stuff that's the foundation. You know, I don't want to monkey with that too much. I think when I when I consider what would we build that people would pay for, the answers are, well, it should be useful, it should be worth it to you, and it shouldn't just be more stuff. Right? We should find an audience that needs something, make a product that fills the need, and then market the product well. So HopPod hits those marks. Right? There's a huge audience of people who are in the podcast industry or around the podcast industry who have no idea what's going on. They need a central source of news with a character in the middle of it trying to sort it all out. And they're, it's, it's worth paying for. And we can market it, and that's where the growth is coming out. And the Verge is a big marketing engine for things like that. Could I light up another one of those? 
at a different part of the market? Could we our you know our partnership with platformer is a, a good example, right? Casey, one way to do a Substack. It's a paid product. It's targeted at people who work at platforms and the people who would regulate them. But we are a good marketing engine for that product. And we love working with Casey. Casey likes working with us. So there's just ways to build these kinds of products and relationships that I think are healthy, seem natural, and most importantly, are not just us trying to get money. It's us trying to deliver value that's worth paying for. Sure. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. You mentioned Casey, Casey Noon, who was a Verge journalist who then, I think last year from a timing timelines right, you know, went off to take his own newsletter independent with Platformer. Um, but you were able to, and so like, I think Casey Newton, there have been other examples, Charlie Morzell, Alex Kantrowitz, who, you know, these reporters who have gone independent and obviously there's the whole Substack trend and, you know, the broader, and then there's the great resignation trend. But you all, as much as like Casey went independent, still remain part of the Verge in some respects, he's you know writing articles that go up on The Verge. You mentioned the relationship with them. How did you come to that agreement with Casey? The first part is that Casey and I just like each other a lot. We're friends, and he's friends with a lot of our staff, and our staff loves Casey. And he didn't leave because he was mad at a lack of opportunities. He left because there was a much bigger opportunity for the thing he was doing, right? We all left our job to start The Verge. Like I respect an entrepreneurial journalist. And so we were very happy to help him succeed. We were, you know, that first year of Platformer, he he did have a deal with us. We were, we were marketing him. We wanted him to be successful. The second year, it's how do we extend that? How do we grow it? Um, it was important for both of us to not have a deal that was based on us being friends. We actually made a business deal. Um, so we're, you know, we're going to market that newsletter. We're going to help him grow He's going to mentor some of our folks because we think that's an important part of his relationship with our newsroom. Um, he's contractually obligated to gossip with me in Slack. That's very important to me. Um, it's like the whole point of the deal. Um, but I, th- I think those relationships are just built on – The Verge has a lot of capabilities. Casey is an independent entrepreneur, can use those capabilities. And we get the best of what Casey has to offer, which is excellent journalism and reporting. And I think we can find ways to – to use our capabilities to help other journalists do do great work without having to have the standard set of relationships. So that's how that one worked. Again, it's all built on the fact that Casey and I are friends. I'm not shopping for these deals. I was going to ask, like, if because the way that you laid that out, it's just like, oh, this seems like it's making a case for like to do more of these types of arrangements. Um. Uh, you know, almost everything that you've asked me about has been, we've been thinking about it. And when the right opportunity came up, we were ready to execute, but we are, we're not chasing things. So I think Casey's a good example of, we were ready to execute. We knew what we wanted to do. There was a longstanding personal relationship there. There's trust, which is really important. I think Hotpot is also, Nick trusted us, um, trusted Ashley in particular. Um, Ashley's doing a good job. Trust is well-placed. But we're not – our growth is not about buying things or doing partnerships. Our growth is about finding audiences and making things that are great. We started off the conversation talking about, you know, the 10-year 
Mark, I'm not gonna ask you to like look ahead <laughs> 10 years, um, even 10 months feels like a stretch, but like over the next year, what are going to be the, the markers or the priorities for The Verge's growth over that next 12 month period? Next 12 months. Um, so over the next 12 months, we are anticipating that we will redesign our property redesigning a website or a scale is hard, so I'm not going to give you a date, but we, we're working on it. Um, I really want to push back on the notion that all of our audience has to come from platforms. I think we are now at the scale with an audience that cares about us, with an audience that still comes to our homepage every day, um, that we can, we can ourselves start to be a central place for people who care about tech and its, its place in society. So that's a big focus of mine is at 10 years, you're not quite an institution, but there are people who have been reading you since they were teenagers, which really like warps your perspective when you meet those people in person. I take that very seriously. We are, we have just been in people's lives for a long time as human beings, not as a brand. They, they know Dieterbone. So I want to take that seriously. I want to take that credibly and not give in to the constant pull that all of your traffic is intermediated by a large platform. So that's kind of where I'm thinking. We'll see. We have to execute, uh, keep coming back to it. No guarantees. But that's in the next 12 months. Once you turn 10, you have that sense of yourself. How do we act like it more? And that's, that's kind of where I'm coming at it from. What are you looking to do differently with the website, with the redesign? I'm not going to tell you. Is it going to be like a cosmetic redesign or like a utility redesign? Because like, I mean, the hot pink pull quotes, I imagine that's something that you <laughs> can't change or there would be some sort of riot. I can change anything you want. Design is how it works. So it's, we're, we're rethinking a lot of it, but I want to make sure it works really well. Leave it there. Neil Patel, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to the Digiday podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode.